the walls before you paint, I think is the worst part about painting. I think the worst part about painting is knowing that the people who move in are going to paint right over it. That's true. It's a pointless, pointless endeavor. Yeah. That's why the guy who I bought my house from just didn't do anything and Perfect. also left all of his shit in the house. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You shouldn't have but let that happen. Shouldn't have let that happen. <laughs> Should have called somebody. Um, <laughs> but we're not here to talk about paint. We're here to talk about history. On the rocks. With Katie. And Allie. So this is a podcast where we talk about famous women in history and we talk about good women and bad women and fictional women and non-fictional women from all times and places because women have nuance they absolutely do and they have so much nuance that we just cram all the research into one week i don't know if those two things have anything to do with each other it does because our list is not getting shorter it's not it's only getting longer we're afraid we're gonna run out of women but we haven't so, but the thing you need to know is that, again, we do all this research in one week and we're just getting it from the internet. And also we're drinking the entire time we're recording. And some of it's just straight up out of our brains. Yeah, absolutely. Just things we've heard around the way. Some things that we saw one article on and we're like, that's interesting. Something I but- <laughs> read one time and think is true, yeah. but might not be true. Uh, that happened to me with one of my college papers. I wrote this huge, huge paper for one of my classes. But uh, I was like, I feel like there's this story I remember from one other class about these women who were like made to be like sex slaves and they all wrote on one napkin together. It's the Stetford Wives. No, it was a real <laughs> story that I like like was racking my drain and I was just like googling like women's napkin and it's just like you sanitary pads <laughs> and I was like no that's not it and like finally I found it and I wrote a really fantastic paper on it um it was about these uh Dutch women who were you know wives of all the colonizers in mm. I think it was um Jakarta and when I think it was I don't know anyways we're gonna do an episode on it like eventually because I do really want to explore that topic again I'm just gonna read my paper (laughs) yeah not today not today today today. (laughs) I am gonna tell Katie a story and serve her a cocktail and then she's gonna tell me a story and serve me a cocktail and it's gonna be great we're gonna compare the ladies it's gonna be tons of fun absolutely and the thing is you're super busy. You're so busy. You're changing every light bulb in your house because so otherwise many. they go out one at a time. Yep. And it only takes one person to change a light bulb in your house. But yeah. that keeps your hands busy. Mm-hmm. It absolutely does. So you can't stop and Google. And if you want to know what these women look like, we're about to tell you. Because we're going to get physical, physical. Allie, who is your person and what do they look like? So I am simply doing the princess from the princess and the frog okay. or the frog prince which has taken several appearances and several names throughout history mm-hmm. so i'm going to do a brief overview the original uh is a german girl who's most likely white with blonde hair including usually a golden dress with golden accessories the okay. story quotes saying she was the youngest but was so beautiful that the sun itself who indeed has seen so much marveled every time it's shown upon her face. So like even the sun is impressed with her. Wow. Then uh, the next rendition of this, it's a Russian girl. And the quote is a maiden so beautiful that words could not describe her. 
Okay. Um, and the first one, the reason I said white girl with blonde hair is just because that's what all the pictures were yeah. of that princess. Mm-hmm. Then in 2002, there was a princess named Emma in a novel called The Frog Princess. And she was young and a white girl with red hair. And then, of course, our favorite frog princess, Tiana, in 2009 was a 19-year-old African-American girl who is left-handed with dimples. And that was very important to Annika. She went in for one of her first screen tests and was like, can you please make her left-handed because I'm left-handed. And they were like, sure. And the only other Disney princess that's left-handed is Mulan. Dude. Ask for what you want, man. That's amazing. (laughs) I love that she was just like, hey, like, you should do this. I want her to look like me and be like me. Sure, sure. We'll make her left-handed. I love it. So um, she wears her hair tied back in a low ponytail, which is very useful for waiting tables. But in her restaurant fantasies, she usually has a 1920s bob. So I feel like she fantasized about that hair. Um, Unlike many cartoon characters, Tiana has a full wardrobe, changing her outfit regularly throughout the film. She has two waitress outfits, two outfits at Charlotte's party, a wedding dress when she's a frog, a wedding dress in real life, a restaurant owner outfit. I chalk all this up to her mom being a seamstress. Mm. And as a frog, she's long and slender. And in comparison to Prince Naveen, she is a lighter color green, but the human feature that sticks around are her beautiful light brown eyes that was long-winded that was very long (laughs) (laughs) because i just described four people what does your person look like so i was supposed to do one person and now i'm doing two okay because so i started researching fanny cochran smith and then i was like hold on who is this woman named truganini I was like, I have to do her too, because honestly, Fanny Cochran Smith had a very, very, very short story. And there really wasn't much to it. So hey, I weaved them together. Learning. So um, both of these women uh, are Aboriginal Australian women. So they express very strong um, First Nation Australian physical traits. They have dark skin, round faces with strong brows. Uh, Fanny's gray hair was typically done in curls, framing her small downturned eyes, while Truganini kept her hair, um, her dark hair cut short and close to her head, which made her large, dark eyes even more prominent. They are sometimes painted um, or sculpted in Aboriginal clothing, mostly Truganini. Um, Fanny is typically always in dark, heavy Victorian gowns, but when you actually look at photos, of Truganini, she is also in like heavy Victorian clothing. Okay, interesting. Yeah, and that's actually kind of a point of controversy with Truganini is like she's portrayed as like in like some paintings and stuff is like more like quote unquote like savage than like she probably actually was when she was like just in the world. Yeah, and it's like, well, every portrait we have of her, she's just wearing like regular, you know, Victorian dresses. Mm -hmm. So... Um, so, yeah, so that's like the best I can do for a physical description of them. Um, when you're done changing the light bulbs, just Google Just it. Google them. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what they look like. Perfect. Do you want to know what you're drinking? I do. It looks delicious. So this cocktail is obviously green mm-hmm. this evening, and it's called A Deal's A Deal. It is two ounces of sour apple liqueur, one ounce of gin, a half an ounce of simple syrup, a half an ounce of lemon juice, and two maraschino cherries skewered on a toothpick. Ooh, 
Perfect. Cheers. Cheers. Tastes like a Jolly Rancher. It really does taste like the green Jolly Rancher. (laughs) I can picture the plastic sticking to the treat Mm -hmm. as we speak. Um, What do you know about the Princess and the Frog? Okay. So I know that like the story that I remember when I was a kid was like in a book and they're like she was like playing with like a little golden ball and she like drops her ball into the fountain uh which is not as high stakes as uh when tiana was going through her stuff right um (laughs) (laughs) and um like the frog gets it for her and then it's like this whole thing and like i just remember like the illustrations i saw like you know how like sometimes like pictures just stick in your head like i remember like the frog eating like a big spoonful of like peas uh-huh. they're like, just like these weird little visions i have of that story um and then like you know she kisses him and then he turns back into uh a prince mm-hmm. um and then i remember the disney version kind of puts a twist on it where like instead of him turning into a prince she turns into a frog right um and it's a very jazzy musical set in new orleans it's super fun um the first time i saw it i was literally blown away by how good it was it's incredible um and but i also know there's like some controversy because people are like why the fuck can't like black characters in disney movies just stay a human right because like and this is happening in another upcoming movie too where like it's a black character and he turns into like an amoeba or like a spirit or something and like same with like Osmosis Jones and like these things of like why can't they just be black people like right <laughs> it's absolutely a point of controversy and there's a lot of discussion around this movie so I'm gonna try to like take us back to the beginning I'm okay. gonna take us through a couple of different frog princess prince type stories and okay. then end with the Disney one and okay. not just Disney itself because most likely you guys have seen it you all know the plot to this story mm-hmm. it, it the grim the original Grimm's fairy tale is like 10 lines long it's yeah. so short um but there's so much background to what was going on with Disney at the time that it makes it important okay so Obviously, like I just said, this is best known through Brothers Grimm's rendition in 1812. There was an older fairy tale version that was handwritten by them in 1810. Uh, They obviously didn't make up the story. They collected them. The Grimm's greatly treasured this tale, believing that it was the oldest and most beautiful in German-speaking region. Really? They think this is like the most beautiful fairy tale. And because of that, it is usually included first in all the Grimm's fairy tale books. Hmm. So it's always like you open up and the frog prince is number one. Huh. Which I don't know if that's always still the case, but at least back then it was. Yeah, I'm going to check my Grimm story book yeah, now. Seriously, that's the picture with that pea spoon. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Part of the story might extend back to Roman times. There is a quote in one book that says, the man who was once a frog is now a king. But a lot of people think that that was just a jab at somebody's personality, not necessarily yeah. a transformation. So in Germany... The tradition that we can officially prove was the frog prince started in the 1200s or 13th century. Oh my God. Yeah. Super old classic fairy tale. Basic plot throughout history is always the same. There's a princess, there's magic, there's a dealer of promise, there's a witch, there's a father figure, there's some sort of transformation. 
um, slash true love curse breaking. And there's always somebody who's really spoiled or whiny. Like every single time there's kind of a character that you're just like, but do they really deserve everything? Yeah. Because they, <laughs> they don't. So here's the original story. It's kind of what you described, but I think it's going to surprise you a okay. little bit, especially at the end. So she is the youngest sister. This is the original frog prince. She's the youngest sister of the king. Uh, the kingdom is situated somewhere near this dark forest with mm -hmm. a well in it. The princess is playing in the heat of the day near this well. In the more modern version, it's a fountain in her garden. That's what I always Yes, me too. It. So it's a well kind of in this dark forest. Her kingdom is so rich that she's got lots of golden toys. Specifically, her favorite is the ball, the aforementioned mm -hmm. ball. And she's kind of in the cool of the trees doing this. One day, she misses her catch, and it rolls into the well, which is so deep, she can't even see the ball. It's, like, super far down. Yeah. The fountain always bothered me because it's, like, get a stick and, like, uh, exactly. fish it over to yourself. Get one Hold of those your dress mini off. golf, like, scoopers. Yeah, what? <laughs> I think it's a pool. <laughs> pool skimmer. <laughs> like, just wade in. Hold your dress yeah. off. It's not that big of or a deal. Or get one of your probably thousands of servants to go in and get it. Right. If you're rich enough to have a golden ball. <laughs> yeah. Like, also just send somebody to get it. Um, so that was interesting to me that she's looking down this well in this dark forest. She starts crying and wailing super loudly. And this frog's like, hey, girl, you sound like you need some help. Seems like he's being really nice, right? She's yeah. like, yeah, I do need some help. And he's like, well, if you give me something, I'll help you. Which is like, come on. Okay. Um. So she's like, I'll give you anything. I'll give you my fancy dresses. I'll give you my jewelry. I'll give you so much of my father's money. And he's like, I don't really want any of that. I just kind of want you to be my friend. I want to go into the palace and eat from your plate. I want to hang out. I want to sleep on your bed. I just like, I just want to be your friend. And she's like, sure, sweet deal, whatever, get the ball. He gets it, gives it to her, and she bails, just like, runs away like peace out frog see you later and he's like well you know? <laughs> and she just keeps going but later that evening there's a knock on the front door she opens it it's him she slams it in his face her dad's like who's that and she you know explains it to him and he's like well you have to keep your promise so that part always surprised me that her dad yeah. was like um you told him he could come in so he has to come like what is wrong with you and when I was reading it it was really weird because it goes through the different steps of like first he's eating off her plate then they're hanging out then he wants to sleep in her bed yeah. and it's like it's okay to change your answer to no yeah after things have started you can say I'm not good with this anymore I've never thought about this story in that terms of and, like, okay, but like now it's like, it's going too far. Right. Oh my gosh. I never thought about that. Changing your mind. Mm. Yeah. And you're allowed to do that. And it yeah. becomes even a little more icky later. Um, so he's really annoying the hell out of her doing all these things, sleeping on her bed. And the sleeping on her bed is the thing that really pisses her off. Yeah. Because he's being so loud. He's sticky on, like, her pillows. And then in a fit of rage, she picks him up and throws him against the wall in an attempt to kill him. I do remember that. <laughs> and that's when he turns into a prince. That's right. They never even kiss. There's no kiss in the original story at all. 
It's so funny because I knew that that's how it ended. Yeah. But I never thought about the lack of a kiss. Yeah. So there is no kiss. True love's kiss is not added into many fairy tales until way later. And I know I say this every time, but we are not covering true love's kiss until we cover Sleeping Beauty. Yeah. Because that is when the rape thing comes into question. Yeah. And I think we just need to save it. But just know that most of these fairy tales, Snow White, Sleeping Beauty, frog prince did not end in a kiss yeah so they ended with other things and the kiss is just kind of later on um so she looks up after throwing him against the wall and he's a prince and then this after this boy is in her bedroom this is the quote and he was now according to her father's will her dear companion and husband what (laughs) so okay so he frog to prince and then he's her husband yep cut to next scene (laughs) it's like okay um it does then reference that she alone could have rescued him which is kind of interesting to have the woman kind of be the hero he had been cursed we don't know why he was cursed but he was and she alone could rescue him from the well it's interesting because that's also kind of the dynamic with Belle and the Beast. It is. Yeah. Is that like she rescues him from like this weird thing. And also like rescuing without knowing too, I think is a really interesting aspect of like neither of them really knew that like they're under a curse. Right. They don't know know they're helping out necessarily. Mm -hmm. But then there's this weird part of the fairy tale right at the end where he gets home to his kingdom to show off his new wife and everyone's super excited especially his manservant whose heart had to have three iron bands put around it to keep it from breaking because he missed the prince so much so the end of the story this manservant's heart grows so big like Grinch style that the metal bands around his heart snap off well I mean that sounds like he was in love with the prince right it does And now he's back with this wife. You know, it's so weird. It just sounds like a huge gay allegory to me. Was the prince cursed because he was gay? It sounds like it. And like only a woman can like save you from that. Fix him from his illness. Like I've never heard that part of the story. That's bananas. It is. What a what an interesting part. When did that part of the story come into play? Was it because it wasn't in the original one? No, right? that is the original. They just really? cut that part. So the story is called The Frog Prince Iron Henrik. And Iron Henrik, or sometimes Henry when it's not Germanized, is the other part of the story. This other guy with the broken bands around his heart. So this is absolutely like a cautionary tale to young men to not be gay. Yeah. Isn't that crazy my mind is already blown I did not expect to be this surprised with this story (laughs) yeah and I I reading that story I just kept being like what does this other person have to do with it yeah so now we got to move to Russia okay so this is more of like a Slavic fairy tale and this one's called the frog princess the czar has three sons he wants them all to get married he gives them all a bow and arrow and says shoot this arrow out into the village whoever brings your bow back you marry that person the eldest two sons it landed in like a nobleman's yard they bring the arrow back 
The youngest son shot his arrow so far. His name's Ivan. They didn't know where it went. So they're waiting around, waiting around. A frog brings his arrow back, a female frog. And the father's like, well, you have to marry her. It's tradition. <laughs> Very similar to the first king. Yeah. You have to do it. So they have a triple wedding. In some versions, the frog can talk. In some, it can't. But after the wedding, the czar decides to make these three wives, his three daughter-in-laws, compete to see who's best. Because he wants to figure out who's going to be the heir to the throne. Yeah. It's not just the oldest. It's whoever has the best wife. So the first competition is needlework. And the youngest son is like, well, fuck this. Like, my frog wife can't do this. So he's just like, goes to bedroom at night. Hey, frog wife, you have to make my dad a shirt. You can't fucking do that. And goes to bed. <laughs> And then he wakes up and like the most beautiful garment is laying there on the bed and he takes it to his dad. She wins. Then the dad's like, okay, okay, maybe the frog princess can sew, but can she bake? So the next (laughs) one is a bread challenge and he tells his wife and goes to sleep. And then there's this awesome bread in the morning lined with linen, you know, smells great. She wins again. And the dad's like, okay, okay, maybe she can sew, maybe she can bake, but can she dance? And the prince is like, this is going to be so embarrassing. It's a whole ball. Everybody in the kingdom's already making fun of me because I'm married to a frog. (laughs) (laughs) And um, she gets to the banquet. And then, like, it's her turn to dance. And just, like, this, her arms and legs start, like, coming out of the mouth of the frog. And, like, out pops the most beautiful (laughs) princess um, in this gorgeous dress. And then she wins the dancing competition. And then her husband's like, oh, great. My wife's a fox, like, good for this, and takes the frog skin and throws it into the damn fire, like, without even asking Oh, her. my God. Burns her, like, exterior. And she's like, what the hell did you just do? I was cursed by my father because I was smarter than him, and he couldn't stand it, and I was so close to being done with my curse, and now I can't finish it, and I have to be on the run forever, and just runs away. What? Yeah. Bananas. What? Yeah. That's so, the craziest story. There are so many different endings to this story. In many versions, um, there's a witch, there's a demon. He goes after her on like a quest. And in some, there's a demon who has his soul hidden somewhere else, kind of like a horcrux, and he has to go kill that thing before okay. he can get to the demon. But eventually, he finds her, he saves her, they come back, and they become the heirs to the throne and take over, even though they're the youngest. Okay. And again, with the burning, this exterior of the princess... I have this feeling that this transformation is not allowed. Like, you can't be a frog. You have to be a girl. Right. You know what I mean? It's like, stop with these alternate identities that you have. Right. It just seems so odd. So in both stories, you know, there's a frog prince who's being um, taken away, potentially, from this manservant who he loves. And then there's this princess who's living this life as a frog and has that taken from her without her permission right so those are the two really old stories then in 2002 somebody named ed baker published a book called the frog princess in this book there's a princess named emma and she runs away from home because her mom is trying to make her marry somebody she doesn't want to marry and she ends up at a swamp where she meets a prince and um they make this deal that A witch has cursed him, and they kiss, and he'll transform back. But when she kisses him, she too becomes a frog. So this is the original part of that in 2002. 
Um, and then they go on a journey to break the spell together. And this is a book? It is. Okay. That came out um, like seven years before Princess and the Frog. Okay. So these three foundational stories are what Princess and the Frog Disney version built off of. Okay. And then to do this story, I obviously read The Frog Prince, The Princess and the Frog. I watched The Princess and the Frog. Um, and then I listened to the podcast Myths and Legends. And then there's oh, I this. I love that show. Isn't it good? <laughs> and then this YouTuber who does the history of different Disney princesses. So I also watched that. Um, so let's bust in to The Princess and the Frog 2009. Tiana came during the renaissance of Disney. They're getting ready to have their merger with Pixar. Everything's kind of wobbly. In the early 2000s, they made Tarzan. um, But then they decided to change their formula because they weren't doing like the CGI 3D yet. They were still hand-drawn. So they were doing things like Atlantis and the Emperor's New Groove. And they just weren't making any money. They were total flops. So hand-drawn animation is like a thing of the past they laid off half their staff and try to move to computers this is just like in 1985 when they moved the animation to the lots and then ariel brought them back yes so this is like an exact replica of that situation in 2004 they put out home on the range which was (laughs) hand-drawn and sucked (laughs) in 2005 they put out cgi chicken little which also sucked (laughs) and it was just like they didn't know what to do so they were like we gotta go back to what we know michael eisner is like okay i'm gonna step down i as ceo i i'm obviously not good for the company right now oh my gosh bob Iger takes over this is 2006 they negotiate to get pixar when bob Iger takes over and john lasseter is like hey you know what we should do we should reinstate animation so in 2009 princess and the frog became the first hand-drawn movie in five years and the first princess in 10 years wow so mulan was the only one before tiana there was nobody in that gap This movie also reinstated the musical. Disney had stopped doing musicals. And although musicals and princesses kept coming with Frozen and Tangled and Moana, those are all CGI. And Princess and the Frog is Disney's last ever hand-drawn animation. I love that because I'm a huge fan of the hand-drawn animation. Me too. It is stunning. And I don't know if it's just because it's what I grew up on but it feels so good and familiar and like I do feel bad but to me like all the CGI stuff looks exactly the same it does it doesn't have the same character yeah like when you watch the special features of Aladdin they talk about how every line they made it skinny on the ends and thick in the middle yeah because they wanted it to look kind of like how Arabic writing looks on paper yeah it's like you lack that you can do that with a computer but those that little bit of characters really cool yeah the movie opens in 1912 new orleans with a rendition of when you wish upon a star i always thought that that have you ever noticed how it's kind of like playing that song over again i always thought that was beautiful we come into a very small tiana with her quote-unquote friend which we'll talk about later charlotte labeouf tiana's mother is reading 
the princess and the frog to them, the frog prince. And Tiana's mom is obviously a seamstress that is working for Eli LaBeouf, which is Char- Charlotte's dad. Um, and he's a very wealthy man. Mm-hmm. Um, in just the first few moments of the movie, you see two very incredible things. They never really say it, but segregation exists. Yeah. You see the toll of segregation on New Orleans. So their trolley car goes through all these beautiful homes with these beautiful columns and awesome New Orleans architecture. And then you, quote unquote, metaphorically cross the tracks and you're in Tiana's neighborhood, which is a lot smaller houses. And you see it's kind of a beat up area. And they're trying to display the... um, oppression of the black people in new orleans without physically saying it yeah and they do a nice job and then the second thing that catches your attention is tiana's family her parents are exceptional her mom like we said is a seamstress her dad appears to have been working at a factory all day but wants to be a chef and then you just watch them prepare dinner together yeah and it's in like the first five minutes and it's really lovely and it's the first time that disney had black characters as a starring cast of a movie yeah um as an animated movie they've Mm -hmm. obviously had um live action black characters starring the other notable black characters most people don't even remember it was like the fbi agent in lilo and stitch oh yeah that mr bubbles <laughs> yeah in atlantis it's one of the guys on the search team mm-hmm. and then like in tinkerbell one of her friend fairies is african-american but other than that there's not really any characters of note so to have an right. entire movie cast with black characters is very groundbreaking yeah especially for for disney who you know is going to get attention a lot of lesser animated studios did it but Disney put it out there and it was great. Yeah. Um, and they're trying to figure out how to save the studio. So they're like, we know what to do. Let's go back to our roots. We are going to write a fairy tale. But all the fairy tales happen in Europe. So we're going to put a spin on it. Instead of being in Europe, we are going to still do the same thing. There's going to be a princess. There's going to be a prince. There's going to be a fairy godmother in Mama Odie. There's going to be an evil witch in the Shadow Man. There's going to be a king. There's going to be a kingdom, which is New Orleans. And we're going to have a lot of fun animal friends. It's all going to fit perfect. It's just going to be in the United States. And as we said, the animation is the most beautiful thing I've seen Ugh. in a long time. Yeah. Specifically, the fireflies flying through the bayou. Ugh. They did such great animation on that. Yeah. Do you say fireflies or lightning bugs? I say lightning bugs. I do too. It's a Maryland <laughs> thing, but I tried to switch it for our listeners. Casey and I were just talking about that the other night because they're like, oh, the lightning bugs are out. And I was like, I feel like nobody else says that, but. Yes, <laughs> we'll have to. We'll have to let us know, guys. Do you say yeah. lightning bugs or fireflies? Because yeah. we say lightning bugs. Yeah, I mean, fireflies sounds more elegant and beautiful, mm-hmm. but <laughs> it's a lightning bug. <laughs> Good old Maryland. Okay, so um, the movie then jumps ahead 14 years into the future. It's the 1920s, New Orleans. And it took three years to make this movie. And the movie got a lot of criticism in the making. First, people did not want the princess's name to be Maddie. They were dead set against that. Oh, I didn't know it was going to be. It was going to be Maddie. Oh. And then they are dead set about what's it going to be if there's an interracial couple on screen. And then it's, well, this is right after Hurricane Katrina. (sighs) How do we want to portray New Orleans? And then... The father's absent for the whole second half of the movie. Do we really want to portray black fathers as not being there? Right. Um, And even though he's portrayed as dying as a war hero because of that picture on her dresser, 
we don't really hear about him. So later on, they added in a lot of lines about her dad. And that was part of a three-year process because they brought on Oprah Winfrey as their technical consultant. Wow. And she ends up voicing Tiana's mom. No way! Yeah! Oh my gosh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, so um, she kind of talked it out with them, like, this is respectful, this is what you could do, you know, just to yeah. consult on the movie because they were going, you know, when you're going to be the first black Disney princess, it has to be done right. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's a lot of people who still think it wasn't done right, yeah. but... I loved it. Yeah. Well, and, yeah. <laughs> well, and the other thing I love about the beginning of the movie is like that whole thing of like you talk, you talked about how it, it opens with like when you wish upon a star and then her dad is like, you can't just wish like you have to fucking work hard yeah. for what you want. Half of what you can start by wishing. Yeah, but then exactly. You have to do something about yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. Which is a wonderful theme for the movie. So Disney brought back when they're trying to make this work. Clements and Musker to direct this film. They have brought in big money for Disney. They also directed Aladdin, The Little Mermaid, Hercules. Mm. They're just damn good. So they were like, okay, bring them in. Then they bring in Randy Newman to do all of the music. And they're like, he did not do the music. Yes, he did. Oh my God. And it is just so jazzy. I mean, it's in the movie, you can feel the music pouring onto the streets like it does in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. It's very, very well done. And I think Tiana was made to be relatable. Mm-hmm. I know that of any Disney princess, I relate with her the most. Mm-hmm. She's a modern American girl. She's a waitress. She works two jobs. She's struggling. Um, she's a woman of color, so she has to work three times as hard as anyone else and still gets kicked while she's down. Yeah. Um, and, you know, usually people like Tiana on film are per- portrayed as having it all together but she doesn't they show her having to give up fun with her friends to get where she's going they show her as kind of being cynical and down to earth like you can't just believe in magic guys like you have to do this she's putting money in jars in her drawers um and you know i i loved the relationship between her and charlotte Mm -hmm. because Tiana is very kind to Charlotte, but it is very one-sided. Charlotte treats Tiana like a best friend, but what we know is that Charlotte's dad employed Tiana's mom. Yeah. And that in 1920s New Orleans, their relationship would not have been seen as quite acceptable. Yeah. So it's a really interesting way how they showed it very one-sided from the white girl. Mm -hmm. And it's not that Tiana's ever mean to her. It's just they keep saying friend. And I just don't know how historically accurate that could have been. Right. Um, And then obviously there's Prince Naveen. He is being cut out of his parents' money and sent to America to learn some lessons. He's from a fictional kingdom, but it seems very Frenchish. That's what I always gather. <laughs> yeah. So I guess he's a prince of France. Like, <laughs> who knows? It's eighteen twelve. Um, and he's a bit of a goofball. Yeah. He to me, his animation looks exactly like Prince Eric. Oh yeah. Yeah. Looking at pictures of him, I mentioned it to the girls when we were watching it this week, and they were like, "Oh yeah, you're totally right." Yeah. So anyway, Eli, Big Daddy, and Charlotte hire Tiana to make beignets for their um, Mardi Gras party, and she 
does and she gets the money to put a down payment on her restaurant building and then the guys who she gave the money to are like oh you were outbid but that's probably a good thing because it would be too much for a girl of your standing and that's the closest the movie gets to really describing um you know the racism of the south at this party, she runs into Prince Naveen, who was transformed and escaped off screen. We don't know how he escaped. He mistakes her for a princess, and they make a deal that he'll give her money, and she'll kiss him so he can turn back into a prince. Then, as you know, she turns into a frog, and they go on a wild adventure to try to become humans. Uh, they meet also. How did neither of her bosses call to be like, is Tiana okay? Right. <laughs> No one is concerned about Tiana. The most like, responsible person. Yeah. <laughs> Where's she Tiana? has so many jobs that would absolutely miss her. She works a night shift at a diner and then a day shift at a diner. Mm. At a different diner. Like, I don't understand. So along the way, we meet a grand cast of characters, including Lewis, the trumpet playing alligator, <laughs> Raymond, the Cajun firefly mama odie the donor character and the shadow man obviously the evil voodoo villain the movie shows us all aspects of new orleans rich poor cajun jazz and continues to say dig a little deeper make Mm. it happen work harder some people have to be more serious some people have to be more chill out figure out which one you are and get it so prince naveen turns out to have to kiss charlotte before midnight because she's a the princess of the Mardi Gras ball, um, but they miss that time slot and have to learn to be happy living as frogs. Then when they get married as frogs, they kiss, and because Tiana had become an actual <gasps> princess post-marriage, they both transform oh. back into humans. She's in a stunning green dress, the best princess dress, I think. Yeah. I love it. Um, but she wears it just about as long as Ariel wears that pink one that she's always in. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? It's like, that's the one she's in on all the Disney princess things. And it's like, she wore that for 15 seconds in the film. Um, then of course she gets her restaurant and she and Naveen work hard to fulfill their dream. And it just looks magical and beautiful in like what we could assume is now 1930s New Orleans. It did pretty well in the box office, ranking at number one for the weekend. It was the highest grossing start date for an animated feature at that time. It grossed $267 million worldwide. Wow. It's the fourth highest animated film from that year, but it was also unexpectedly overshadowed by Avatar that was released the next weekend. So it's like... It happened, and then Disney releases this other thing, and then that happened. Rotten Tomatoes gave it an 85%, which is really high, really high. And they said it's because of the warmth and tradition of Disney. Yeah. But a lot of people were really upset that Tiana was a frog 90% of the movie. And I can totally feel that. I guess, though, because we spend so much time with her at the beginning of the movie, even in frog form, I'm picturing her as Tiana. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, yeah. So I I really appreciated her character yeah. the whole time, frog or human. But it does suck that, you know, you're not seeing Tiana as a powerful black woman on screen. You're seeing her as a powerful frog. Yeah. And I feel like it's also like... It's happening again with this new like yeah. movie, and then people are like, "Come on, 
Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like, just let us have one. Just let the let them be black for the whole movie. Right. Like, <laughs> like I don't. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. It's like Raven Simone is not our one yeah, black character. <laughs> Disney. <laughs> um, so the importance of this movie was, you know, she had dreams beyond getting married and finding love. You often don't see the princesses talk much about what they want to do with their lives. And she's very specifically wants to be an entrepreneur, which was so cool. Well, and it also shows it's like happily ever after and then some because it's like happily ever after they get together. But then also they're working together and they build something that like you can see them owning that restaurant for years to come. It's not just like goodbye in the wedding carriage like hope it works out like (laughs) and his parents Naveen's parents are seen in that last film like eating at the restaurant like sitting there like excited that their son has married this woman and it's not a spoiled rich boy anymore so um also obviously the theme is part of the title song that she sings almost there is about hard work and dedication instead of fantasy and dreaming And then three, the significance of the first black starring cast is nothing in comparison, I think, to the first black Disney princess. Annika Rose said, I, I, it was a dream come true for me to voice a Disney princess. Like you never think as a black woman, you'd be able to do that. So it was so important. And I think the significance was lost on the current children Mm. because she came out in 2009, my daughters grew up with that being their first Disney princess. Oh. Like to them, Princess yeah. Tiana, that's the one they're selling the plates at the store for birthday parties. And you do this and Princess Tiana's there and you that's the dress that everybody wears for Halloween, you know, because it's their first year. But it spoke volumes to people our age. Yeah. Like, hey, that's really fucking cool. Well, and that's what's so interesting about like what Disney's doing now. Like I remember when the Incredibles 2 came out, you know, like all the millennials are like, okay, like parents, like keep your kids at home. Like we're the ones who need to see this first. Like (laughs) it's almost if like, because we grew up in the age of the VHS animation belongs to us. It's ours. Yeah. And I feel like that's how we all feel of like, uh, you didn't have to hit rewind on that VHS player 20 times a day to watch Hercules a million times over. Right. Like I did that. You also, know? speaking of that, I didn't mention the muses or Frozone as black characters and all of those. Exist. Yes, they are. <laughs> so um, I wanted to end Tiana's by saying one of her best quotes from the movie. The only way to get what you want in this world is through hard work. Mm, so true. And that's the princess and the frog from start to finish. I love it. All of them from Germany to New Orleans. I learned so much. There you go. <laughs> you ready for more drinks? I am ready. Let's do it. I'm very excited about this drink. I am too. <laughs> it looks so cute. I'm a big fan of a shandy, and I always forget that they literally exist. They exist. Yeah. So, I never make them at my no, house. Never, never. ever. Um, yeah, I'm super excited about it. And it's just really hot today. And we've been like really cruising with like 
the lower alcohol beverages this evening, which is a change for us. So, <laughs> so tell me what it is. Okay. So <laughs> this is the Palawa Shandy. Ooh. So this is um, a lager mixed with lemonade. And then you put uh, just like a squeeze of fresh grapefruit juice and then bitters. And then you just put a couple of slices of fresh grapefruit in there. And that's it. It looks great. Yeah. Cheers. So cheers. Mm. Oh, it's so good. It really is. It could be. It's It's got the taste of a creamsicle, but with no cream. You know what I mean? Kind of yeah. orangey, kind of yeah. sweet, kind of beer. When I'm glad I, because I was thinking about like what to do to make it like really unique. And I feel like the bitters really set it off because it's like, it's because lemonade is so sweet that it's nice to have that kind of balancing it out and right. just like add a little bit of nuance to it. <laughs> For sure. So what do you know about um, either Truganini or Fanny Cochrane Smith? I know that uh, every time we sit down to plan out our seasons, we really try to like go to countries and places and groups of people we haven't done before. And this was like uh, a very specific goal to be like, let's be with Aboriginal women in Australia. Yep. But that's all I know. Yep. All right. So that's mainly where most of the story is going to be is <laughs> Aboriginal Australia. Um, just a warning. This story contains a lot about genocide, obviously. Right. Um, and I got most of this from two different female-led Australian podcasts. Okay. Um, one is Deviant Women, who I use all the time because they're great. Um, and then there's the Fierce Females of History podcast. So they did an episode on Fanny um, Cochran Smith. So uh, they're very new, though. They only have, like, I think eight episodes up right now. So go show them some love. Um, And I also watched part of a documentary called The First Australians. And then there was this Guardian article called Truganini's Story Has Always Been Told as a Tragedy. So she was so much more than that by Paul Daly. So let's get into it. (laughs) Um. Before I go into their stories, I feel like we do need to get a little bit of history on the continent of Australia. Mm. So this was very interesting to me. Apparently, once people got the hang of the idea that the earth was round, philosophers, (laughs) philosophers, philosophers and scientists had thought for years that there must be some sort of southern continent balancing out the globe. So during the age of exploration, this mysterious continent was high on the discovery priority list. In fact, it even had a name, even though it didn't exist yet. They were looking for Terra Australis Incognito or Land Southern Unknown, which is where we get the name Australia from. Uh, So the first people to get there that were white (laughs) were uh, Dutch sailors, and they were pretty stoked when they happened upon this mysterious southern land in like the early 1600s i feel like the dutch went everywhere they really did they were just on it i think as they had really nice boats okay um (laughs) never been on a dutch vessel i'll have to check them out um but of course um like most shit during this time there were already people living there so i don't want to say they discovered it they happened upon this already existing uh continent and put a flag on it (laughs) and put a flag on it 
So the first Australians, which are divided into two groups, so there's Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders people, um, and there is some controversy surrounding what to call the Aboriginal people. I know that there is a term deriving from that word Aboriginal that is offensive to use, but the term Aboriginal people um, or person is still accepted. I was also seeing the term first Australians used, but then some people were saying that it's not ideal because it kind of refers to the name Australia, which of course is not what they called their land. So I'm going to use the two terms first uh, nation or like first people and Aboriginal people or person. So those are the two terms I'm going to use. I looked up so many sources because I didn't want to be using offensive terminology. Um, So that is uh, what I'm going to be going off of. So when the Europeans came across this giant continent, there were most likely 300,000 to 700,000 First Nation people inhabiting the land. There did not seem to be a name they used to refer to the whole continent. But what I found interesting was what we know as Ayers Rock should actually be referred to as Uluru. So Ayers Rock is not the right term to use because it is a very sacred site to them. It's um, always, Uluru is always put in parentheses after Ayers Rock. Why isn't it, it the other It should be the way other around? way around. <laughs> <laughs> um, they initially, these Dutch settlers named Australia New Holland, but then when the British landed on the East Coast in 1788, they named the other half South or New South Wales. So now it's kind of split between Dutch and British. Okay. Of course, as many of us know, Great Britain thought it'd be a great place to ship off their unwanted convicts. Um, a lot of these convicts were like petty thieves and like I always thought that it was like the worst of the worst were sent to Australia it's like overcrowding (laughs) like there was there's one guy who we're going to talk about later who like he was sent to Australia because he stole a donkey that was his big crime Hmm. and a lot of like and so one historian said that out of the 161,700 convicts who were brought over two-thirds of them were just thieves ugh so once they arrived, they were sorted by skill and then used to basically build Sydney. The female inmates, which numbered to about 25,000, were made to be domestic servants or factory workers. They were subject to harsh treatment and brutal punishment if they were unruly. But escape was not really on the table because similar to the movie Holes, the remote areas of Australia were like, it's the bush. It's desert like it's not friendly to people who don't know what the fuck they're doing. Yeah. If you run in any direction, you're going to find either no water or a poisonous animal. Yeah, exactly. Because the animals in Australia are, we could do a whole episode on them. They're bananas. Um, and this is why the encounters that these people would have with the first people um, who were already living in these areas were not very positive because they'd be desperate. They'd be angry. They would come in. They would physically harm the aboriginal people and they would steal their belongings and like it was like a real mess on a very personal scale because this isn't this is like a side effect of what the british are already doing so they're already kind of coming in taking these people's lands and now they're just letting these like convicts like run amok in these areas so you're saying they needed prison reform yeah (laughs) exactly (laughs) um and But of course, this wasn't the only unrest occurring between the first people and British settlers. The first wave of disruption, as always, was disease. They brought in smallpox. Then there were just various wars breaking out in areas where British people wanted to settle and where the first people lived. And this was the start of kind of um, the Black Wars 
um, which were a time period between the mid-1820s and 1832. But the largest area of genocide, from what I was understanding of my research, all happened on the island of Tasmania. Mm, That little island right underneath. Yes, Australia's teardrop. Um, I just didn't know that most of it was focused on Tasmania. That's interesting because I always see images of First Nation people kind of being marched across, like out of their land. Yeah. Um, and definitely like ethnic cleansing. But yes. it's interesting that Tasmania is like an epicenter for it. I almost feel like Australia was like too the big. main continent was too big to mm. like really do it effectively. So they were like, oh, look at that smaller island. I bet we could get every single like native person off of that fucking island. Mm. And they did. Um, 200 European colonists, um, were killed during the black wars and between 600 and 900 Aboriginal people lost their lives, which for a community of their size was incredibly detrimental. Cause again, this is just on Tasmania, but among the survivors of this horrible time period was a scrappy young woman named Treganini. She was born around 1812 on Bruni Island, which is a small island off the coast of the island of Tasmania. Yeah. So if they're the teardrop of Australia, she's the teardrop of Tasmania. Like, she's double tears. Um, so to paint a picture, it's, again, an island off the southern coast, and it's just this beautiful, like, island. I mean, it's gorgeous. Like, it's just really cool. Just look up pictures of Bruni Island. Um, and now this particular area had a very interesting history because since the Dutch came in the 1600s, they'd actually been coexisting rather peacefully with the people of Bruni Island in Tasmania who, uh, were called the Palawa people. So that was like the name for like their kind of group of people. Um, which is why this is a Palawa shandy. (laughs) Um, And then, so because the Dutch had been coming in and fishing and whaling, then Americans started going there in the 1700s, fishing and whaling and sealing. So they were after all these big things. Right. Got to get those resources. Exactly. So the people of Tasmania and the surrounding islands were fairly accustomed to white people at this point. They're like, okay, they come, they fish. You know, they um, have a few small, like, fishing towns on some of the smaller islands. And then they leave us alone. And then they leave us alone. Like, it really wasn't a problem until the British came. Yeah, you haven't met all the white people yet. You have not. (laughs) Um, And some of these fishermen were bad, as we're going to find out later. Right. But when the British came, it really changed the course of these people's history. So, um... This is the world that Troganini was born into. She was the daughter of Mangana, the chief of the Bruni Island people, and she spent her childhood living a traditional Palawa life with her people until around 1824 when Lieutenant Governor George Arthur arrived to turn Tasmania into a penal colony. He completely ignored an ordinance from Great Britain not to harm the inhabitants, so they originally didn't want to do what they'd been doing other places. They're like, hey, when you get there, like, just leave them the fuck alone. Like, Australia is big enough. We don't need to commit any more genocide. Mm. But uh, he ignored that. Um, And he instead implemented two policies to deal with the growing conflict between settlers and the Aboriginal people. First, bounties were awarded for the capture of Aboriginal adults and children. 
And secondly, an effort was made to establish friendly relations with the Aboriginal people in order to lure them into camps. Hmm. So Truganini and her people tried to make peace with the white men, but the tension only grew worse. And by 1828, martial law was declared. And then it became legal for any white settler to just shoot any Aboriginal person they saw on site. Man, woman, child, it didn't matter. If they were a, like First Nation people, they were... You're, it was completely legal to just shoot them. So it was almost like it was illegal for First Nation people to be there. Exactly. Like you are poisoning this land. Yes. By the time Choganini was 18, her mother had been killed by sailors. Her uncle was shot by a soldier. Her sister was abducted by sailors who, who sold her into sexual slavery. And her fiancé was brutally murdered by timber cutters. Well, all right. This particular murder of her fiance was actually a really horrific incident where they were being taken across a river and the white sailors who were with them suddenly threw all of the Tasmanian men overboard. And when they tried to get back into the boat, the sailors cut their hands off so they couldn't swim back up and they drowned like that. That's horrendous. Yeah. So it was like a a torture murder. Yeah, pretty much. So uh, then they took the women who were left, and uh, including Truganini, and they repeatedly sexually abused them. Of course. Now, I mentioned earlier that there was a friendlier attempt to deal with the first people, and this is when a man named George Augustus Robinson comes into the picture. Now, he is a very complicated figure in Australian history. Um. Because some people think he was a good guy with bad methods. Others think he was a wolf in sheep's clothing who kind of knew exactly what he was doing all along. And just some people just don't even know what to fucking think of this guy, which Mm. is kind of the camp that I'm in um, for many reasons that we'll get to. Um, but he's a really complicated person. Like some people, like there's one historian in the documentary that was like, I love him. And another person was like, he was a monster. And so it's like, I don't know what is going on. (laughs) Um, So his job was basically to find groups of Aboriginal people and bring them to Christ. And while he's bringing them to Christ, also bring them to basically concentration camps, not in Tasmania, so they could clear that island completely of the native people. Okay, so he's converting and converting the people and clearing the and land clearing at the, the same land. time. Yes. Mm. And he would tell them that he'd be like, oh, in order to like peacefully resolve all the all this trouble, like all you have to do is just come with me really quick to this island, talk to the leaders, and then you'll be home really soon. They would never see their home again. And again, some people believe that he was kind of also duped in this situation and they didn't tell him the full plan. There were like, like some people believe that the British people were like, yeah, just like tell them, you know, that like they'll be able to go home eventually. And like some people think he actually believed it and other people think he knew the whole time. Okay. But uh, it's like, I don't want to give this colonizer more credit than he deserves though. So it's, it's just very complicated. Um, but the people, Truganini in particular, trusted him because literally the bar was so low at this point that the first people were like, wow, a white man who's not trying to shoot us. Yeah. I guess he's our friend. You didn't murder and rape me. Exactly. <laughs> so 
Triganini becomes his partner in this work. And she would lead him into the bush and she would translate for him. And with her by his side, they would go out and try and, quote unquote, save as many first persons as they could. I also want to note that he did rename her around this time. He named her Lalarook because Mm. he had a hard time pronouncing Triganini. But of course, we're going to ignore that name because it wasn't her fucking name. Um, but just in case you're online and you're like, I thought her name was this. It's not. Also, Triganini is not that hard to say. It's really not. So she does get married at some point throughout all of this to a warrior named Warity. Um, they had a good relationship. And uh, but that's like all I really know. Some people say that like he also went with them on their missions. But like other stories just leave him out completely. And then he really just drops off after this. Hmm. Um, there's one historian who says that Truganini and Robinson had a sexual relationship, but literally no one else believes this is true. And I kind of feel like it's like a Pocahontas John Smith situation all over again of like trying to romanticize the story to be like, no, he was a good guy. Like they loved each other. They couldn't have just been like platonic colleagues. Right. Exactly. So uh, they did have like a nine month funny period where no funny business was going on. They were just trying to form relationships with the people up and down the west coast of Tasmania. Some did not take it very well, though. And during one of these missions, uh, Truganini actually saved Robinson's life. They were being chased by some people all the way to this large river and she, who from many accounts was a fantastic swimmer, um, like crossed and then Robinson was like I don't know how to swim how can you be an explorer (laughs) if you don't know how to swim he's not he's a missionary oh (laughs) that's fair that's fair um and so then she like had to like go back across the river and like basically like carry him across the like with him like on her back or something like some say she had a raft but I don't know how she would have a raft like all of a sudden because they didn't know they were going to be in this situation so I don't know either way she saves his life and people heard this story and were floored because everybody loves the story of like not only a rescue, but of like, oh, my gosh, see, like he is a good guy. And like they are friends and they do care about each other. And, you know, he's doing really good work over there. It's like it's, maybe she just wasn't a bogus asshole. Right. Like, there's just, like, a lot going on here. But basically, this story kind of travels far and wide, and her name really gets out there. Things take a turn, however, um, and now the conversations are going more towards, okay, but you really do have to leave this land and go to this island um, named, what is it, Flinden's Island, Um, because the British are now being crystal clear that they want every first person off of this land. Triganini did not know this, and she also did not know that if Robinson was successful in his mission to get the native people off of the land that the British wanted, there was a large financial incentive for him. Near the end of his missions, he had rounded up about 300 first people, which doubled his salary, and then he was also, as an extra bonus, gifted with a large tract of land. I see. Yes. So... Unfortunately, when all of these people were being transported to their quote-unquote safe haven, European disease ran rampant through the people and 200 died. So by the time they got to Flinders Island, there were just 100 people left. 
And on this island, they were kept in a small colonial village. They were not allowed to engage in any traditional practices, and they were subject to forced crash courses in how to be white. There was one woman who was able to sneak away and learn the Palawa ways, but we will get to her in a bit. The people continued to die, and Truganini just watched while her people disappeared. And she realized that the goal was never for them to return to their land. Robinson wrote in his diary that the people lost their spirits sitting on the shore of this tiny island, looking towards their homeland, realizing they would never return. It's, it's, it's prison island. Yeah. And as one historian puts it, disease finds people quicker who have lost their spirit because they can literally see it. They can see, it's like being on Azkaban and you're like, there's San Francisco where I could be free, but I'm here dying. Like it's, it sucks. Azkaban is in Harry Potter. Damn it. I meant, what is that called? <laughs> Wait. Why we do this all the time. Alcatraz. 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 I was like, wait, is Azkaban <laughs> correct? No, it is not. Um, um, but can you see London? Yeah. <laughs> yes, Alcatraz. So, Truganini is like, all right, this is fucked. I have to get out of here. But she didn't leave the island without confronting Robinson. She went to him and she said, look, you have failed me. You have failed my people. And if you ever want to look at me in the eyes ever again, you'll fix this. And apparently he did. He tried to do something about it. So when he because, again, he's just like kind of sending people to Flinders Island and it kind of sounded like he wasn't really there. So when he went there and he kind of saw what was going on, he did work with Truganini to get some people out of there. He took them to Port Phillip, which is now modern day Melbourne. Um, but it wasn't a lot. It wasn't everybody. Enough. Plus all the people who died yeah. sitting there. It just sucks. Um, but after this whole episode, she was just done with Robinson and mm. she was pissed with the whole establishment. So she got together with a few Palawa warriors named Pive and Timmy. Um, who were recorded by the white men as Jack and Bob. Okay. I don't know why they needed to rename Timmy um, as well. <laughs> and then they also were with two women, Fanny and Matilda. I'm sure that they weren't their names. Um, and they basically started a gang and they became outlaw bush rangers. I'm obsessed with their little gang. <laughs> so apparently a bush ranger is kind of like the Robin Hood of the Australian bush. And it's a whole thing there, which I have never heard of. Uh, apparently, there's this guy named Ned Kelly who was played by Heath Ledger in a 2003 movie. And the deviant women were like, oh, yeah, well, of course, everyone knows Ned Kelly. So if you just say Ned Kelly, I'm sure they'll get a picture, you know, in their mind of what uh, like a bush ranger is. Mm -hmm. And I was like, never heard of him. Still don't know what a bush ranger is. Um, but yeah, Orlando Bloom and Heath Ledger are both in this movie. It looks wild. <laughs> I'm ready to watch. I it. know. Um, maybe I just need to watch Rescuers on Under again. I don't know. Watched it a couple weeks ago. Um, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> so anyways, Triganini is now out for revenge because now she's fucking pissed. And the first people that she wants revenge on are the whalers who stole her sister. So wait, is she currently in present day melbourne or is she off on this other island or is she on tasmania she is in melbourne and she is going to go to an island of whalers okay but it's a journey and she's living as a free woman kind of yes because that's the thing 
these people weren't exactly they weren't like slaves they were prisoners it's like this weird thing but then people are like no you're not a prisoner you're just on this island and they're like but you're not allowing us to leave Mm. so we are (laughs) like so the group finds out where these whalers are and she sets out to find them looting and stealing on the way they then find themselves on one of these small islands that has become a whaling community. So when they were coming in, they would, again, do these like little port cities on like these small islands. Mm-hmm. So she goes here and this whole area they're entering is filled with these kinds of men who sail around the seas and islands searching for seals and whales and also Aboriginal women to abduct and sell into sex slavery. Right. So they find out where this main guy Watson lives and they plan to attack his house. But Truganini, who understands what it's like to be caught up in this shit, waits for him to go to work. And then she goes in and, like, she gets the women and children. And she's like, hey, I'm sorry, we're about to, like, burn your house down. So, like, I'm going to take you out of here. We'll find you a new place to live. And, like, she leads them to safety because she doesn't want them to be casualties in this situation that has nothing to do it's with them. It's not their fault. It's not their fault. They're civilians in this war. Exactly. So she gets them to safety and then she, they go in, they steal everything they can, they burn the house down and then Watson comes home to like the charred remains of his home and he probably thinks his family is dead. Of course. And he sets off after Truganini because again, they're on a small island right now. So... He kind of knew who did it. He's like, I'm a finder. Yeah, exactly. So he sets off again, uh, you know, on her and her gang. And while they're escaping, they happen upon some other whalers and they kill them. They also engage with some more guys and they kill them. But they don't actually kill them. They just think they do because they shoot them. But basically, people now know exactly who they are Mm -hmm. because they've seen them. Like, so he was on the look for some bushrangers. And then he's like, oh, shit, it's this gang. So they're all chasing this bush ranger gang. (laughs) And they evade capture for 45 days on this very tiny island, which is wild. Um, It's very impressive. But eventually they are caught by a party of 29 men and they are taken back to Melbourne for trial. But obviously, because we are in Australia, um, it's looking like it's going to be a kangaroo trial. Right. Of course. It's fake. Because no one. A literal kangaroo trial. Exactly. <laughs> I was like, this is like the most apt time for this term. <laughs> um, because no one in the gang is allowed to testify because Aboriginal people are not allowed to speak in a court of law because they were too savage to understand the idea of a supreme being aka god and therefore they could not really take an oath bullshit isn't that ridiculous it's like this whole thing like well they don't really understand god so how could they like you know really take an oath seriously i can't handle something like that no so she can't even stand up for herself in court but here comes robinson And he comes to the trial to speak for her and he commits perjury and tells the jury that Truganini had nothing to do with the crimes she was accused of. It was Jack and Bob who were just using her and the other two women as pawns. 
And because he's an influential white man and Jack and Bob aren't allowed to speak, the jury believed him and she was set free. And I think this is why we have such a complicated relationship with Robinson. Because if it wasn't for him, she would have been the first woman hanged in Victoria, Australia. So wait, is the moral of this story that missionaries are liars? I don't know. (laughs) Which is the... uh, it's the most ironic part of this story is that they wouldn't allow her to testify for herself because she would commit perjury because she can't understand God. Meanwhile, the missionary who taught her in the first place about God commits perjury to save her. It's wild. Um, but Pive and Timmy, AKA Jack and Bob, uh, are hung. Okay. They are put to death for these crimes. Um, it also is kind of weird. It's like, why would he do that if he didn't really care for her? And I think that's why like that one historian is like, oh, they were obviously in a romantic relationship. He could just also just care for her as a friend. Like there are other things, there's other things besides romantic love. Yeah, exactly. Um, but because she is a first person with a female with very few rights, she is put under his jurisdiction. They're kind of like, okay, so like, Take her back to Flinders Island. Uh, Lord over her. Yeah. So, but once they get to the island, the two kind of separate. And in his words, it was a really emotional um, separation. And when he left her there, he gave her some parting gifts and they both cried. But we also don't have any word from Triganini. So we only have what he says of the situation. We don't know. We really don't know. But we do know that when he came back four years later, she treated him very coldly and kind of ignored him. Oh. So, again, differing stories. In 1856, her and the surviving Palawa people were moved to a place called Oyster Cove. By 1861, the number of Palawa people were dwindling even further, and there were just 14 left. 14? 14 people. Total. Total. And there were initially 10 different tribes of Tasmania. And now it's down to 14 people. I mean, this was a very true genocide. There were married couples among the survivors, but like by this time, none of them had children. This is like an entire ethnicity going extinct. It is. Some say it was due to poor health. Some historians think that they just chose not to reproduce after all because they didn't want their children to be born into this life. And then there are some sources um, that say that Chirganini did have a daughter named Louisa Esme at some point, but chose to hide her so she wouldn't be taken away. So maybe that was also happening to some of these children. I just, I don't know. And no one really knows. But by 1873, she had become one of the last survivors in Oyster Bay. And she knew she was close to the end and she wanted to ensure that her body would be cared for appropriately because some Aboriginal bodies had been dissected and mutilated uh, to try and prove that they were less human than white people because Darwin, there's like this whole other part of the like Aboriginal story where like Darwin came in and he's like, they're the missing link. And like, they're like, no, we're just human, human. Like, what? What? We're homo sapien. Back off then. So they're, like, dissecting them, and they're, like, oh, they must be, like, part animal. And, like, it's this whole, like, fucked up other, like, racist part of their history that I just didn't 
have time to get into <laughs> or like the knowledge base because it that's this whole other thing also like this whole story really is focused on Tasmania rather than mainland Australia um but anyways so she requested that her body be cremated and her ashes um scattered into the body of water separating Tasmania and Bruni Island Churganini passed away on May 8th 1876 she did spend the first two years buried in a grave, which was not what she wanted. Mm. But then in 1878, her body was exhumed for scientific purposes. What? And her body remained on display for science for 100 years. That is the craziest thing I've heard. I did not expect that. I didn't either because I don't understand it because they were literally just and it wasn't even, I don't even think it was on display for the public. It was just for scientists to look at, just her bones. It's like, what the fuck are you doing with that? Like, I don't understand. Mm. So, I don't know. But 100 years later, in 1976, she finally got the burial she wanted and deserved when they cremated her and scattered her ashes between Bruni Island and Tasmania. Truganini would become famous for being the last full-blooded Tasmanian Aboriginal person alive. But actually, that was not true. Because in 1834, while Truganini was in the midst of assisting Robinson to transport more first people to Flinders Island, a young girl was born on the island, on Flinders Island, after her family was relocated, named Fanny Cochran Smith. And this is the girl. This is the person I was originally supposed to do. Right. And Triganini is just backstory. I was like so obsessed with her story. And she is so important and not recognized. Like the girl is really interesting too, because the podcasts I were listening to, they're based in Australia. Mm. So like this one girl was like, yeah, I remember in my history class, my history teacher said, hey, this is off the books, but like you really need to know about this person. Again, so like sometimes your teachers are trying to teach you the real shit. Right. You just have to listen. <laughs> and I mean, it's, it's interesting to think about Triganini because it's like it almost sounds like Fanny's story wouldn't make sense without hers coming first. Exactly. Okay. So not only is it providing this very rich background, but it's just a story that I also want to talk about because I think it's really important. Mm. And like I had no idea about all that stuff going on. Um. So she is born in captivity in December and she is given an English name because, of course, they were trying to wipe out the Palawa culture as much as possible. We don't know too much about her family, but we do know that even though these camps were areas of westernization, groups of first people would find their way out into the rural bush area to engage in traditional religious practices and they would dance and sing and just talk to each other in their native tongue. But... That was a little more short-lived for her because from the age of five to eight, she lived in the home of Robert Clark, who was a Brit British preacher. And then she was sent to the Queen's Orphanage in Hobart to learn domestic service skills. Um, so they basically like fostered her and then sent her to like maid school orphanage and then brought her back to be their domestic servant. That's like the opposite of finishing school. Yeah. It's also like the opposite of taking care of a child. Right. It's like, what? Um, <laughs> but when the island started closing down in 1847, she and some other Palawa people were taken to Oyster Bay, um, where Chiganini would later find herself. 
1854, when she was 20, she married an English ex-convict named William Smith. Um, his big crime was stealing a donkey, like I said earlier. And the two would go on to have 11 children together. Wow. And they did move away from Oyster Cove. And they moved into more of a white area um, because her husband is white. And she is realizing that she is one of the last people who have any recollection of the Palawa, Palawa language and customs. And it starts to kind of upset her because she's watching her children grow up and like play with these white kids. And she's like, oh, you my childhood was so different. And she's like, you don't know any of the things that I know, like of your people. It's gone. It's gone. It's going. All those VHS tapes. Yeah. (laughs) So she wants to preserve everything she can. Um, But first, she's got to make some money. So she starts cutting and selling timber while running a boarding house and having 11 kids. And the timber business was apparently like a real bitch. Like it was like a 30 mile walk into the bush to cut down the wood and drag it back to sell. That's insane. It's ridiculous. Um, She was a really amazing businesswoman, though. And with her working extremely hard at the timber and the boarding house, she puts herself in a really good position of having her foot equally in the white and indigenous world because she's selling to both people. She's still hanging out with some of her like, like Aboriginal, like friends. And like, so they're also getting together and hanging out and like talking about shit. And so both of the communities have great respect for her And she was also kind of in both worlds spiritually because she would put on these traditional um, Palawa ceremonies. But then she and her husband were also very devout Methodist um, or devout Methodist. Um, But as more and more Palawa people started to disappear, she was worried that the culture and the language were truly going to just be gone forever. So instead of just like spending time with people, she's like, okay, now I need to like really hone my Palawa skills. So she starts, you know, doing all bush food cooking. She starts um, making medicine. She crafts like necklaces and she does basket weaving. She embraces the songs and the dances and the language. And again, kind of similar to like the Native Americans, the Native Tasmanians were in separate tribes. So she had a separate language and her specific one was disappearing. Okay. Because there are still like Aboriginal people who exist, but this was a very specific language and culture. So then upon the death of Trogonini in 1876, she realizes that she is the last full blooded Tasmanian left. And I think in an effort to like make up for a lot of this genocide and shit, the government grants her two large pieces of land and they give her a substantial annual pension, which she receives for the rest of her life. Wow. Yeah. In the 1800s. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, She donates some of the land to the local Methodist church. But while the new church is being built on this land, she actually starts to hold services in her kitchen. (laughs) And... uh, people apparently came from far and wide to come and sit in her kitchen and eat her food and attend her fabulous fundraisers. But it wasn't just the food because then she's like, okay, people are already here eating. Uh, I'm going to perform for them. So people are coming into her home and she starts singing Aboriginal songs and she starts dancing and she's doing all this and white people and 
Aboriginal people just loved to gather and experience this culture. And she was really well known because she was a really good singer and dancer. So it's like very performative and people are like, this is amazing. And she then starts to expand these performances. And then by 1899, she's performing for really large groups of people. And someone was like, shit, we have to record this so we can preserve it. So in 1903, she recorded her songs on wax cylinders, which still exist today, but they are so delicate that they have really only recovered um, one that you can listen to, but you can find it online. So I would recommend you like take a listen to it. Um, But what makes it extra special is that not only is this, it's this cool early recording, but it's the only record we have of her language. The only one. It's not written down anywhere. There's no one who speaks it anymore. That's incredible. It's a That's dead it. language. It's a dead language. So it's just one thing. It's one thing. And you can barely hear it because it's so freaking old. Um, but apparently when she heard the recording, she cried out, my poor race, what have I done? Because apparently she didn't quite understand how the recording system worked. And she thought it was her mother's voice coming through the machine. Like, I don't, it was, oh. I wanted to find more about that, but I couldn't really. Um, but one of the five cylinders did break and the other four are too fragile to play. So they have not been played since the 80s. Um, and they have since been preserved in the National Museum of Australia. The recordings are hard to hear. Um, and to this day, no one can translate the music because when Fanny died on February 24th, 1905, the language of her people died with her. Not even any of her 11 children could speak it fluently. So... It's all we have left, but at least we have something. And we have Fanny Cochran Smith to thank for that. It was like, again, like it's, and I don't even like, there was, it was really hard to find information on her. I just can't imagine losing a person in 1905 and us being like, oh, we never bothered to ask what those words yeah. meant. Yeah. yeah. Like that was like a hundred years ago. Yep. And we're just like, yeah, it's all right. Wow, what the last a, one! What a ride! I know. So I hope that all made sense. Um, Absolutely, it did. <laughs> uh, do you want to talk about these two women together? In a little segment we like to call "Just the Two of Us," and the answer is yes, I do. Um, <laughs> Woo! I mean, the mixing of cultures for sure. Yeah, absolutely. different groups of people. I mean. New Orleans is like Louisiana in general is like a melting pot. You have so many different types of people. And it was because of colonization um, and slavery and, Mm -hmm. you know, the French and the English. So I feel like it's a very similar situation in Australia. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then you kind of have this thing of like, okay, like what, how exactly do we want to handle this situation? Like, are we just going to acclimate? Are we going to protest? Are we going to try and hold on to anything that we possibly can? Which like Fanny absolutely was. And I don't know. It's really hard to navigate those things. But yeah, the the mixing of cultures was very interesting. Um, I mean, it almost seems like most of the people tried to acclimate. They're like, okay, you want us to move to this place? Okay, we can move to this place. Like. Um, and I know obviously people started fighting back and it was like traumatic, but it sounded like, 
you know, the, the First Nation people of Australia were like really, really trying and they were just not receiving like any positive help. No, no, they weren't. And then when they did try and like find again, like that peaceful resolution, like it really wasn't peaceful in the mm. end. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't know. And I kind of feel like that's how um, some of the themes in Princess and the Frog grow, go of like, I'm going to make you a deal that seems very simple, but it's not. And like in, in the whole story of the princess and the frog, you know, even the beginning of like the frog being like, yeah, I'm just going to come in. I'm going to have dinner. He's like, but then I'm going to get in your bed. It's kind of like, hey, we're just going to come here. We're just going to fish. Just fish. And then we're just going to take it another step. And then we're just going to steal your women. And then we're just going to remove you from the land. And in general, it's financial incentive, it seems like. And the most recent Princess and the Frog, that's how it is. It was, I'll kiss you so you can become a human again and marry Charlotte and have all of their family's money. And I'll kiss you so that I can get enough money to start my restaurant Mm -hmm. and with Robinson it seems like I will get rid of these people so that I can have this plot of land yeah well and then too it's kind of like this whole theme of like you have to do this thing like Mm. the first people like they really in the end didn't have an option it's like you have to leave this land unfortunately like because so many of them were getting killed and like they were like well in order to stop some of the fucking murder, like, I guess we will try this peaceful plan and leave. So it's like, we're not really choosing. You know what I'm saying? And mm-hmm. I kind of felt like that was the same thing with the princess of like, and Tiana. Tiana's like, I really wouldn't do this except for the fact that like, I need this money. So like, because she is in a disadvantaged She's you know, in a situation, she doesn't, it's kind of like, you know, how much choice do you really have when you are like structurally disadvantaged right like like if the system isn't for you then like you have to work within it even though you know in the end it's never going to benefit you and you just also have to get it done done i felt like triganini had that over and over again. Yep. We're like, I just have to get it done. I just have to work harder. I just have to compromise with this one person. I just have to keep working. And that yeah. was exactly how the um, Tiana story went. No, exactly. And I also feel like there is like this theme of like romanticizing relationships. You know, I feel like Robinson and Truganini, it was kind of like, why are you trying to make this into something it's not? And that really like, most likely didn't exist just to make yourself like feel better about the situation. And I kind of felt that way with like Tiana and Charlotte's relationship. It's like, again, like that probably wouldn't have existed, but it's nice to think that it would, because I feel like it makes you feel better about it. You know, Uh like, especially like as like a white person, you're like, no, they were friends. See, like it wasn't that bad. bad. Like, yeah. Like, and even the the kiss in the original, the frog prince, it's like, why are we romanticizing it? Yeah. The kiss was not originally there. No. We added the true love's kiss later on. And now it's the most iconic part of the story. Yeah, it is. Like, we don't get to Tiana without someone in the span of that history adding a kiss to the story. Right. Like, oh, I don't know. And 
I just also was thinking about like being in the wrong skin and like like I was thinking about the one version of the princess and the frog where like she literally sheds her skin to like accomplish a task and then it's burned and she's like wait wait I wanted that and I kind of felt like that was how it was for like a lot of these first people and like for and like you know this thing of like hey just because like I did convert to Methodism doesn't mean I don't want my aboriginal culture you know and it's kind of like don't throw out my culture just because I am also into this thing right and it I mean it's Fanny at the very end of her life being like I need to remember this I need people to remember this because it's gone it has been burnt nobody else exists but me yeah exactly oh man and it also ties into this whole theme too of just like let them be black. Like, mm. I was there, like with Tiana, it's like, you know, like, again, we talked about how she's not, you know, a human for a good portion of the story. And this whole conversation of like, why can't we have just like a black character exist in the story and like not be turned into like an animal or an inanimate object or something. And you kind of have that with the first people. It's like, why can't they just be who they are? Why do you have to anglicize them? Like, mm. why do you have to push your culture on them and turn them into Christians who wear big Victorian gowns and like, quote unquote, save them? Yeah, exactly. It's like, that's not saving them. And I just kind of feel like that was also like, I don't know, just like an interesting thing to look at in very different ways. I don't mm. know. I agree. And also just like different kinds of stories eclipsing each other. And you know, The Princess and the Frog is interesting because the story has transitioned so much. And I even just feel like between Truganini and Fanny, they literally just missed each other by a little bit and lived mostly at the same time. And they could have been acquaintances, yeah, friends. They even. could have been. But their stories, because she was just born a little bit before and all the memories she has are of violence and terror like fanny was born when they were already on flinders island right she's already quote unquote a prison baby yeah exactly and at that point it was like it wasn't exactly like the conflict that truganini was being exposed to it was more so like this situation sucks but at least i didn't watch my fiance drown in a river because his hands got chopped off she was born into that normal life of being assimilated yeah exactly and i kind of feel like that's what the story of the princess and the frog has also done of Mm -hmm. like let's keep changing the story let's evolve it and like so the first one doesn't look like tiana at all no totally (laughs) different yeah but also like stories have to change you know um and you can do that with a fairy tale but you can't with humans no like real humans so it's why you know, Fanny's story and Triganini's story is so tragic. And then we can celebrate someone like Tiana because yeah. it is a fairy tale. Well, and I think that's the reason why I don't think you can tell Fanny's story without Triganini's right. because you don't get why it really was so important that she make those recordings. Yeah. And I think I struggled a bit. Um, Sometimes watching The Princess and the Frog because it's like, how can you tell a story in 1920s? south america without addressing directly things like segregation but then i also think about like they tell a lot of princess stories without addressing the 
black plague the death yeah. you know what That's i mean true. like they do <laughs> they, they sweep a lot of that under the rug it's like we're not going to confront like, yeah every little trauma yeah. just this one person's yeah. trauma <laughs> it is funny because you said south america and it just made me think of like southern Brazil. america <laughs> yes the southern half of the north america oh man i don't know well and also just women changing men you know and i think that's pretty cool too it was cool in both the stories both that was fun stories. so Ooh, you ready you to toast else? i'm ready to toast all right let's do it Allie, who would you like to toast this evening? So I want to toast women who are willing to give up other people's frivolous stuff. Mm. You have a lot of people who are willing to be like, oh, let's go do this. Oh, let's go go do that. But Tiana really had her mindset on like some goals. And her friends are like asking her to go dancing at the beginning of the movie. And she's like, no. And they're like, see, I told you she wouldn't come. Yeah. And it's like, well, girls got goals, man. Like maybe she doesn't even like dancing. When you know what I just thought about? It's really interesting to me because she also never asked Charlotte for the money. No. And she totally could have. And I think or, Charlotte would have given it to her in a heartbeat. Yeah, or her dad. And the, he, the way they treat her, they absolutely would have given her the money. Yeah. But she didn't want to do it that way. No. Which I think is, again, like this really admirable trait. It is. And, and that's why, like, I just... You know, you're not responsible to do everything that other people want you to do. You don't have to do their checklist. You have to do your checklist. Mm -hmm. So I want to cheers people doing their own checklist. Mm. Cheers. Cheers. Love it. I am going to toast the last women. I feel like both of these women kind of, again, eclipsed each other. And even though they had drastically different experiences just a few years apart, they did what they could for the people that they loved. Mm. And that's it. To the last women. Oh, to the last one. Cheers. Cheers. You ready for promo? I'm ready. What are you enjoying in pop culture this week? Well, I texted you Well, I already know because I listened to it today. (laughs) I texted you yesterday because I just couldn't hold it in anymore. But I started listening to the podcast Forgotten Women of Juarez. And it is just a really cool American, Texas, Mexico border story about femicide happening in Mexico and you know American involvement and Mexican involvement and drug cartels and it's just a really cool like eight episode series that just you know drags you through a situation that we don't think about so far from the border but is so ever present like when they were talking about people sitting in their offices like on the American side and looking across the border and being like I know young girls are being murdered right there and I'm doing nothing about it. Yeah. It's, it's traumatizing, but also just like a really important story to tell because women are losing their lives. Yeah. And it like, cause I listened to three episodes of it today cause I was driving a lot. Yeah. Um, and it's also just people all the time. I feel like, well, why don't they just go to the authorities? Why don't they just go to the authorities? It's like, when you listen to it, you understand why. And you yeah. un- also understand why people want to get the fuck out of there sometimes. And they're willing to just like come across the border because yeah. it's really hard to come across legally and like why they need to get away. Cause like, it's just, it's a really fascinating story. And I think it also just like really takes you into like what the fuck is going on in some of these places right. and how they have no one to turn to. You, like nobody's listening nobody's Somebody listening could disappear and it's like okay your daughter disappeared maybe she ran away yeah it's like or maybe she was murdered yeah and then there's like this one guy who's like 
oh yeah i can get you in contact with the witnesses and then she goes back and she's like all right cool where then he goes i can't help you anymore no explanation but you know someone fucking got to him like this person who was totally willing to help and then it's now a dead end it's because some deep. it's mm, it's it run so deep. deep. It's very good. Woo. I really highly highly suggest it. It's a great podcast. Yeah. It's a really good listen. It is. And okay, uh, I am going to promote a movie called Best in Show. <laughs> it is an early is mockumentary. <laughs> yes, it's an early mockumentary uh, taking place at a dog show and. Um, <laughs> If you're a fan of Shit's Creek, it's Eugene Levy and um, Catherine O'Hara, who I always I didn't know that Catherine O'Hara was like like a sketch comedy Canadian queen. Oh, I didn't know that either. Yeah. She started off in a um, sketch comedy group. Uh, I think it was like Second City, Ontario or something. like oh, that. Oh, OK. And so basically she was involved in all of this comedy stuff. And then she just became everybody's mom in you know, Beetlejuice and yeah. Home Alone. And like, I had no idea that this was her background. So it's so fucking funny. And it's on Hulu right now. I've been wanting to watch this movie for years and I, it was never streaming. Uh, it's short, which I love. It's only like an hour and a half long. Perfect. Super easy watch. And it's fantastic. Great. Uh, highly recommend it. It's very good. And that's it. Oh, I can't <laughs> wait to watch it. So... Thank you all for listening. We really appreciate you. Um, don't forget to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. That is the best way to show your support for the show. Uh, it just fireworks explode in our hearts when we see a review. It so happy. It really does. And you can find us on Instagram and Twitter and all the places. And we are getting so many requests. We're so excited for season seven. We're mm-hmm. going to sit down and put them all in some sort of organized order. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it should be really, really cool um, to just see what happens. Yeah, it's going to be really great. Um, so thanks again for listening. And we love you. And never forget that well-behaved women sit side saddle. They do. They love it. <laughs> and they rarely make history. Bye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.